Hey folks, Jeff Salzman here and welcome to The Daily Evolver. Today, my guest is integral philosopher Steve McIntosh, who is here to discuss the virtues, which is a philosophical concept with roots to antiquity and which he identifies as a way forward for our polarized culture to move into a new integration. And this is an argument he expands on in his upcoming book, Developmental Politics, which is coming out in March. Steve has created an exercise for developing the virtues. It's called the Character Development Exercise, and it is on his website, culturalevolution.org. It's an internet quiz, basically. And I have taken it, I took it back in uh, several months ago when he was just prototyping it. And I will testify that this internet test, which took about eight minutes, has made me a better person. I think I'm more virtuous as a result of it. So in this podcast, we will encourage you to take the test in the middle, basically. But um, you can follow along at any rate, and there's still lots of good information. But please do take the test. It's worth it. All right, we start as I ask Steve to just give us a simple description of the exercise. It's, it's a form of applied philosophy that's adapted from my forthcoming book, Developmental Politics, and the book's coming out March 1st. And in the book, I have a variety of uh, sort of technologies, if you will, or methods for raising consciousness. And one of those is uh, this practice of developing character strengths, which is really a spiritual practice in its own right. Um, so uh, one of the things that I've done in anticipation of the upcoming publication of the book is take one of these methods or technologies, one of these practices that are in the book, and make an online exercise out of it. So this online exercise is now available on the Institute for Cultural Evolution's website, culturalevolution.org, and it's called Your Portrait of the Good. My plan is to give you a little bit of the background, give a quick five-minute overview of the exercise for people who are only kind of under, interested in that, and we'll pause for a minute and let anybody, any of the viewers who are interested in checking it out can take the seven minutes to do it and then come back because we're going to discuss the philosophy behind this spiritual practice, this yeah. online spiritual practice. And the, um, you know, the philosophy would be more interesting once you've kind of done the exercise and see yeah. how, it, how it works. Well, well, let me also interject my testimonial. Okay, great. Yeah. So, you know, we live uh, around the corner from each other and see each other a good bit. And you have been writing your book, Developmental Politics, and I've been part of your discussion and reading drafts and so forth. And you're acknowledged as, as really my number one sort of influence and the person who I've been able to bounce ideas off of. But really, you're, you've, you've participated in the creation of this book in a big way. So wow. Just, well, thank you very much. Yeah. yeah, I'm proud to. It's a, an amazing new way of thinking. Uh, but anyway, so but, I did this yes. character development exercise yes. about six months ago, I would say, in some proto form. And it, it changed my life. And, and I'm not kidding. And in a permanent acquisition, it's that kind of thing where I saw myself and my relationship with other people and just what I'm doing here in, in a, with a new clarity. So... I was kind of blown away. So I just want to put that out there. And so, yeah, so tell well, us about it. Just, it wasn't just contrived, it was discovered. As when we get into the philosophy, I'll explain how through a development of this philosophy of virtues, which is a very interesting ancient philosophy that's experiencing a revival in many quarters now, when you apply the lens of integral philosophy to it, a lot of new things come alive that can't be seen at the modernist level, which is kind of where the revival of it is going. And of course, it goes way back to the traditional level. But, but character strengths or virtues, which is you know a word like values, it has some baggage to it, but it's worth fighting for. It's worth trying to rehabilitate because it's an excellent word. I mean, it means um, 
you know, those, those habits of personal excellence or states of intention toward excellence that um, are, are really an essential part of a goodness practice, right? So we'll get into that. But let me just say that um, I was motivated to create this exercise as part of the larger mission of the book, which is to try to um, uh, make a contribution to solutions and amelioration to a significant problem that we face in America, really throughout the developed world. But specifically in America, um, we have this bitterly divided uh, uh, society. And it's, it's freezing our politics. It's, it's creating huge dysfunction in our government. In some ways, it led to the election of of Donald Trump as our president, you know, the, the extreme polarization and the culture war, you know, he was a sort of product of that. And so growing out of this um, extreme hyperpolarization, this extreme animosity, the bitterly divided society that we have, growing out of that is really one of the major challenges of our age. Um, you know, in some ways, for me, my main political concern is climate change. You know, I'd like to see a, you know, a full court press on our politics and government and, and uh, you know, private sector on trying to create a solution to climate change that we can export to the rest of the world, right? But in order to do that, in order for our government and our politics to function effectively toward the amelioration of climate change, the main barrier to that is the hyperpolarization, right? So that climate change is a football, political football. It's seen as an issue of the left. And so rather than the entire society recognizing how climate change is something that we should get behind, the division prevents that. So healing the division is in some ways a, a prerequisite um, uh, uh, problem to solve or at least ameliorate before we can start to effectively address climate change. I like what you said about it's about growing out of it and growing into the next stage. And isn't it just the nature of evolution that we're going to polarize before there's a new integration? Yeah. In other words, the differentiation is the product of growth. We've been stretched out through uneven growth. And so this is a challenge, but the very challenge itself, the solution is the emergence of another level of civilization, a more mature society. And so it's a golden opportunity, but we still have to acknowledge that there's, there's many problematic conditions that we face. Climate change is an existential threat to the planet, to humanity, and that the negative things in this world are, are certainly a, a, a big part of what our obligations, you know, our sort of ethical duties to try to make a difference towards those problems. But in, in the solving of those problems, sometimes it's uh, at least one of the methods of growing up is focusing purely on the good, focusing purely on virtue, even in the face of the, you know, climatic times that we have, um, the, the focus on the good, the purity of the good is what this exercise is about. And it, it's not freestanding. It's part of a larger effort to deal with the bad things in the world. It's not like we're trying to be Pollyanna or, you know, cover our eyes from the big problems. But when we drill down and we look at what's it going to take to grow out, we're going to have to evolve consciousness along many lines, right? We have to develop our worldviews. We have to develop our sense of identity. Every worldview, it's not just a matter of moving from, you know, uh, the center of gravity toward a more progressive worldview because that creates other problems. In other words, we're, we're advocating for an integral worldview that transcends and includes the cultural war. And the evolution of this worldview has to occur along many lines of development in consciousness and culture. And one of these lines of development is character, right? So character strength is a line of development within consciousness. And I would say it's a trunk line, you know, like values, it, it really, your worldview, it really anchors your identity. So your character is a very much part of who you are. You know, it's kind of, of, of what, what your, your essential integrity is, what your, what your convictions are. How quaint this all well, sounds. Uh, you know, it, 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 it echoes traditionalism, yeah. but, it's, but it, it transcends traditionalism, as I'll explain when we get to the philosophy part, um, because it, it brings in elements which can't be seen until you get to integral philosophy, like the understanding of, of eros, right, or value gravity. Virtues are a, a key technology for harnessing value gravity, which, again, I'll explain. But let me just kind of give a quick overview yeah, of yeah. this. What, what are we talking about here? Okay, so we're talking about an, an online exercise. It takes between 7 and 14 minutes. There are 10 questions. You answer the 10 questions, 
and it creates this personalized chart, which is then sent to your email address, right? And this chart becomes like a practice tool for the practice of virtues or developing your character. And this, uh, this, the, the way the chart is, is charted, the way that this portrait of the good is, is made, is you go through a series of questions. It first, first asks you your life's goal, right? That might be happiness or success or self-actualization. It gives you choices, right? And although you may want all of those, it asks you to select one as your, your sort of most, the, the, the clearest articulation of what your life goal is. So and you're selecting from multiple choice. Yeah, there's six yeah. choices for what your life goal is, right? Yeah. Just gets you to think about yeah. that, mainly, right? Right. Then it asks you who your people are, who your loved ones are, who your close friends and colleagues are, and what groups you identify with. Like, you know, I'm an American. I'm a male. You know, I'm of English heritage, right? I grew up in California. These are sort of the groups that help define my identity. Right. Then, then it asks you, finally, what you consider to be transcendent. And that's defined with a pop-up. Uh, it's, it's sort of anything that is, that, that's more important than you. You know, you have self-interest. And you have greater than self-interest, right? So that might be the environment. It might be humanity. It might be all sentient beings, right? It might be goodness, truth, and beauty. There are all kinds of ways that we can, you know, a person can conceive of what is more important for them, what they'd be willing to sacrifice your self-interest for. So then after you've lined up your, you know, your, yourself, your others, and, and your, your conceptions of transcendent, then it asks you to select, there's seven multiple choice questions where you select a particular virtue for each of seven positions. So let, let's go to an example of the portrait of the good so people can see what we're talking about. And as you can see, it's, it's just a simple blue background that kind of shows some motion. And in the center are seven specific virtues that this, that this particular portrait selects. And then there's the transcendent on the side, which can, you know, one, this, my family, people in need, animals, planet Earth. And then there's just some names on, on, the, on the left. Um, Self-transcendence has been selected as a goal for this portrait. Move to the next one. So here's another example, same exercise, same format, but a different set of seven virtues selected. These are the classical seven fundamental virtues, which we'll talk about in the philosophy section. But, you know, again, there's different ideas of, of the other one. Uh, previous one had oneness, you know, maybe a non-dual conception. This has God's will, uh, a more theistic conception. And then move to the third example. This one's more secular. You know, nature is transcendent people. You know, humanists are you know listed as my people, and these are another group of seven potential uh, virtues. There are forty-nine potential virtue choices, seven um, potential choices for each of these seven positions, and the process of determining which of these virtues, you know, what are your highest ideals, what what what, what defines the best you can be. And, and so, so the process of selecting the virtues um, is, is, is a practice of virtues because what virtues are, again, I mentioned they're, they're states of intention, they're habits of the heart, they're commitments. And so part of it is just, you know, memorizing these virtues, sort of committing to virtues, really. Um, that's why it's called a portrait of the good, because it's, it's like a mantra, the, the the portrait, and you can print it out and put it on your refrigerator, right? It comes as a high-quality PDF. But the, the point of it is that it becomes an anchor to a virtue's practice because you've selected these virtues as a, a portrait of the best you can be. And the practices involves making the portrait reflect who you really are. So they're not just aspirations. They're actually character traits. So, you know, who are you? You're courageous, right? Yeah. You're loving, right? You're just, you know, you're, you're, you're creative, these are, these are things that you aspire to be, but they're also virtues that you can mold yourself to be. Yeah. And, uh, and, and, and this, is, uh, you know, this is how character is developed. And, and this practice, this, this uh, approach to becoming a better person is thousands of years old. I mean, it's evolved in an anthropological context um, you know, so that it's not just a good idea. It runs deeply within human history and um, again, when I get to the philosophy part, I'll explain the history and, and how it's experiencing a revival now and what integral philosophy really adds that yeah. brings it alive at a new level. Well, what it uh, has done for me is, 
you know, it's my own sort of fingerprint of what, of how I'm going to do this. And it, like I said, it brought in a clarity of, okay, of these virtues, which one is the one I'm vibing with the most, Right. you know, and when I think of the people in my life, so I have these amorphous groups and friends and so forth, but it actually forced me to clarify who's my family, mm-hmm. who's, who's in the next ring, mm-hmm. uh, how do I feel about, you know, the ever bigger rings, how do I identify, and in, in so doing this exercise itself, I saw where I did, where I didn't. I clarified the people in my life that, wait a second, these people aren't just here to annoy me. They're <laughs> here because they're my family. Yeah. And I and I actually reoriented myself. You know, a five, I'm an Enneagram five. We're very stingy with our, <laughs> you know, attention, basically. Yeah. And um and I reoriented that. That's very, very significant to me. And I really appreciate it. Thanks. Well, in addition to just thinking about the virtues and choosing the virtues that feel right in terms of your personal commitment, um, the website also includes a, a list of 10 simple practices you can do once you've created your portrait of the good. You know, put it in a prominent place. Talk to your friends about it at a, over a meal. Yeah. Um, uh, create a uh, check-in weekly. And this is what Benjamin Franklin did. Part of the way he grew into a giant of history, yeah. he had a lifelong virtues practice. And he made a list of his specific virtues that he was going to try to live up to. And every week he would record in his journal how he did on that virtue. So the idea of having seven virtues that are you know your selected virtues and then thinking about which one is my strongest and which one is my weakest. And uh, how can I develop these as strengths? What does that look like? Again, I've got 10 simple, you know, easy everyday things you can do to use this mantra, this chart for your virtue practice to, again, make it a portrait of, of who you are. Yeah, right on. Yeah. Okay, right. so let me suggest then uh, for the viewers of this podcast to put it on pause for a second and go to culturalevolution.org, you know, and click on the character exercise and take seven minutes and do this test and create their portrait of the good and then come back and listen to the philosophy behind it and why it's not just contrived or why there's some, there's some deep currents of value energy that are animating this exercise and and why it really does work. So culturalevolution.org and the test is again, it's your portrait of the good, a character exercise. Great. Okay, so let's talk about um, the integral philosophy, sort of where, where this comes in and, and you know, how, it, how it's evolved. When I first encountered the philosophy of, of what's sometimes narrowed into the category of virtue ethics, I was sort of unimpressed. You know, it seemed like being virtuous was very much a traditional thing that they were sort of religious commandments from the Catholic Church, right, that you should be virtuous. And that, that didn't sound right to me or particularly appealing because it was just, again, ungrounded religious commandments. But I, in the past couple of years, I've really come to see virtues in a new light and appreciate how the practice of this character strength development um, is very exciting because it ties in with um, the idea of the beautiful, the true, and the good. And which has been um, a focus of my work for the last 30 years. So I could see how uh, values and virtues were related, um, even though they, they concepts overlap. There are many concepts we could say that's both a value and a virtue, like justice. Values are all the things that people care about, all the things they strive to make more of, or, or it's, a, it's a way of, of um, defining uh that which is desirable, that which is is uh, admirable, that which we're striving for, that which we want to see more of, right? And and another way to think about it is is the good, you know, or quality. But value in the universe, quality, the good, um, is is kind of best understood philosophically through this triad of the beautiful, the true, and the good. In other words, the good is very abstract, but it starts to come alive when you connect goodness to beauty and truth. Right, beauty and truth are like the two legs of goodness, right? And and as I argue at length in a variety of my books, these are like the most intrinsic values, right? So that, that while we could list hundreds of values, including love and freedom and, and lots of very important values that we could say are most important, 
there's something very special about the triad of goodness, truth, and beauty. Well, in fact, you talk about them as having a gravitational pull. Right. Well, and so, I love that. That's always been very helpful to me, Steve. So the, the, the way virtues fit in with this idea of the gravitational pull of value, that's what brought this alive at a new philosophical level and showed me how to create an exercise that could be powerful and that, you know, yeah. people would be interested in doing, right? So um, the, the beautiful, the true, and the good. Let's, let's get that slide up for a second. All right. Okay. This is sort of a word cloud. And it shows, uh, you know, the, the hundreds of virtue concepts that we could associate with value or that can name different kinds of value. The good, the true, and the beautiful, in a sense, are like capstone qualities for the major dimensions of human experience, value in human experience. So, for example, goodness is the capstone quality of, of the moral realm, beauty of the aesthetic realm, truth of the rational, right? Even though they overlap and there's truth that's not that's transrational and goodness that's beyond morality and, you know, beauty, aesthetics are broader than beauty. The fact that these three values have been associated by both... Um, ancient and modern, secular and religious, there's something very special about the, the beautiful, the true, and the good, and sensitive thinkers throughout the centuries have continued to come back to them, recognizing them as kind of primary, and, and that leads to an analogy of like the primary colors, right? Just like RGB on your computer screen, or red, blue, and yellow in pigments can be mixed and matched to create all the visible colors, the beautiful, the true, and the good are like the, like, primary values from which all the other values could be derived, at least arguably, right? So the thing about the, the, the beautiful, the true, and the good is they're not just properties or, or concepts or, or qualities of a thing. They're not, they're not so much static as that when you come to understand them more deeply, more philosophically, when you practice these values, as you mentioned, you, you can see that they have an, an energetic pull, that they have, exhibit energetic properties, right? And, and this sometimes is, is just talked about in integral circles as arrows, right? That, that is this pull of arrows, which begins, you know, which, which is first uh, Plato in his dialogues talks about arrows and he makes a connection between libidinous sexual desire and this sort of higher form of, of, of eros, which leads from, you know, a, a sexual attraction to the attraction to the finer things in life, you know, the, 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 the eternal forms, as he put it. Um, but uh, Eros, of course, the idea has been attacked um, as being too metaphysical or supernatural or not in evidence. And so it's important to um, talk about in a minute here, but just let me say as a preview that, that this is not mysterious at all. It's, it's in full evidence to anyone with a, a skeptical or scientific point of view, as I'll explain. Um, it's a real feature of life because wherever there's purpose, there's value pulling on that purpose, influencing consciousness at every level of its development. Yeah. So, yeah. okay, so the beautiful, the true, and the good have energetic properties, right? They behave in, in, a, uh, in, in evolution's purpose, my 2012 book, I called it value gravity. But in my forthcoming book, Developmental Politics, I, I say value gravity is still a useful idea, but I, I'm, I'm moving toward the conception of it as, as value magnetism. Right, because the, the magnetic behaviors of polarities and circuit behavior, um, you know, uh, electromagnetism mirrors the behavior of value a little bit more accurately than gravity. Oh, cool! Yeah, and and you know, I mean, we're we're talking about physical energy, and then we're talking yeah. about this thing, value, which is not physical. Yeah. Right? No, how cool is that? But as Emerson said, I mean, I rely heavily on this quote from Emerson where he says that every natural fact is a symbol of some higher spiritual fact. Yeah. Right? And as above, so below. It's a cliche, right? So, but the, the ubiquitous natural fact of physical energy, including all its physics in the electromagnetic spectrum, is remarkably illustrative of a very similar behavior, albeit non-physical, in the realm of value, right? So value you know, connects between poles like electricity. It, it, it moves in a circuit like electricity. And, and so just having a loose analogy, I don't know, you don't have to take it too literally, but a loose analogy of this thing in the universe which is influencing us, the potential yeah. for a better state of affairs. Well, you know, that's the big thing for me was 
I've thought about these things. I know that there's a history of thinking about these things, and it's philosophical, but then actually feeling the energetic uh, analog or the energetic part of it in my body and in the subtle realm really does uh, just enable a a hugely greater traction. Right. Right. Yeah. Well, it also appreciates that why, why it needs to be practiced. That the beautiful, the true, or the good aren't just some static things you assent to. These are what motivate you. These yes. are what form you. These are yes. what reward you, right? So let's go to the next slide and I'll, I'll uh, make this more concrete. Okay. Now, here are these three values rendered um, as circuits. So let's start with truth there um, on the left. You can see I've got the arrows indicating that there's a circuit of learning and teaching. Right. That's if we think about truth as a form of, of value energy, one, one of the rays of this energetic gravity, uh, you can see that, that you, you truth enters into your mind and then it makes it, it, it edifies you. It, it feeds you. It nourishes you with value energy like like food when you learn it. But in order to learn the truth, in order to receive it fully, you need to give it out. You need to teach it. Right? You can see this in the way that you never really learn something until you fully teach it to other people. That's what, you know, taking a test in school is a way of teaching what you've learned and it grounds it. Likewise, when you learn something that you're really excited about, you're naturally motivated to share it with others, to teach it, you know. And then when you have, the, when, you, when you undertake it, when you undertake the, the project of teaching somebody, teaching something, teaching a particular truth, it, it, it's, it piques your interest in that. It makes you want to learn more of it, right? So there's a circuit and it's circuiting of learning and teaching, which is how you practice truth. Absolutely true. Completely my experience of it. The same energetic practice of beauty, right? You know, beauty is something that you take it in by appreciating it, and you give it out by creating. Again, beauty used broadly to include all aesthetic experiences, right? And so because the beautiful and the true illuminate goodness, we can begin to see how the, the, these natural practices of taking in and giving out, which characterize both the, the practice of truth and the practice of beauty, have a similar circuit of practice when it comes to this uh, value energy um, uh, feature of goodness. And, and so the labels that I've used to talk about taking in goodness and giving out goodness are devotion and service, right? In other words, you know, service is a way of giving goodness to another person. Devotion is a way of, of letting that which you find to be, you know, inherently good or transcendent or more important than you. Devotion is a word which evokes the idea of you appreciating it or learning it. You know, it's coming into you. So these are just, these show you these circuits. And so if you focus on goodness, the next slide begins to connect the beautiful, the true, and the good with virtue. Okay, so we're now zeroing in on this this circuit of, of devotion and service. And if it, um, in the realm of truth, we now have, right, the educational establishment has developed all kinds of technologies for learning and teaching. We know there's different learning styles. We know what works, we don't. So we have all this, uh, we have all this, these well-developed techniques for truth, for learning and teaching. Likewise, in the realm of the arts, right, and, and aesthetics, we, we know very much how what can get people to appreciate what, what, uh, what facilitates their creative urge. You know, these things are well known, but in the realm of goodness, pr- the practices or the technologies that go with the encircuiting of this goodness energy are, are not as well appreciated or the, some of them have been lost. And that's where all these words in this word cloud come in. And these are, these are some of the hundreds of concepts or words we could, we could um, use to label virtues, right? There are, there are, hundreds of potential virtue concepts that have been recognized uh, down through the ages by, you know, thinkers and practitioners. And these are just some of them, but they show that these are all, all the ways that you can either find devotion to the good or, or be of service to the good. And give a couple examples for folks that might just be listening, Steve. Well, sure. So in other words, one of the ways that you can be of service is you can be creative, right? Or you can be wise, or you can be um, uh, perceptive in your ability to recognize what's needed, right? So just looking at these words, you can be, you know, somewhat, sometimes being patient or humble is a best, best way of serving somebody, to sort of be more yin. Another way of serving is being perceptive or, or you know, working to be effective at, at, at bringing value. You know, on the devotion side, we could say that, um, you know, that, that, that which you trust, that which you're loyal to, that which you have faith in, these are species of your devotion. 
and and how this relates to this virtue practice exercise will become clear as we proceed. So let's just right on. get that slide off for a second and go to the next slide. So just as we saw the previous slide of the word cloud of values with the beautiful, the true, and the good, here's a word cloud of virtues like we just saw within the devotion and service circuit. And these are seven classical virtues that have been recognized since antiquity and which I argue at length in the book are, are in some ways, they're the fundamental virtues. Just like we have the primary values, we have the fundamental virtues. And these are faith, love, justice, temperance, prudence, courage, and hope. Um, and while we could use different synonyms for these words, we might substitute prudence for uh, practical wisdom or temperance for self-mastery, right? Or courage for determination or faith for, for, for loyalty or openness, right? There's all kinds of different synonyms, but what makes these seven particular virtues fundamental are that they've been recognized since antiquity, they've been validated within recent revival in academic moral philosophy, and they've most interestingly been validated through the research of positive psychology. Okay, so faith, love, justice, temperance, prudence, courage, and hope. Love yeah. it. The, yeah, these are the fundamental virtues, which uh, if you look at, you know, go to Wikipedia and type in seven virtues, right? There's an article about it. And part of the reason that these virtues have, have come down to us is that they're part of the catechism of the Catholic Church, right? But they go back before Christianity, right? So many cultures revered virtues, right? There was, uh, you know, Confucius and uh, other Chinese sages. Virtues was a sort of cornerstone of their church. Sure. Yeah, totally. But our, our primary understanding of virtues today comes to us from the ancient Greeks, who were very concerned about um, human excellence. What does it mean to be excellent? And Plato mentions the, the virtues of his day that were common. As he didn't just make these up. These were in currency in the culture of Athens in the 4th century BC. And, and these were the four cardinal virtues of the Greeks, which are justice, temperance, prudence, and, uh, and, and courage, right? These were later um, expanded on by Aristotle in his famous treatise on virtues, the Nicomedian Ethics. And um, he, he talks about virtues as each virtue is a mean between extremes and how the group of virtues form a unity in which, in which each virtue is necessary for the full uh, expression of the others. They sort of work together. I mean, Aristotle would say mystical things like there's only one virtue even though, you know, they had a numbered list, right? But the, the virtues were powerful, and they were carried over from ancient Greek philosophy into ancient Christianity. And one of the seminal geniuses of ancient Christianity, St. Thomas Aquinas, really did a lot of his thinking around virtues. And so he added St. Paul's virtues. They're called the theological virtues of faith, hope, and love. You know, faith, hope, and, and caritas, or, you know, charity sometimes, but love's a better translation. And these were sort of consolidated into seven virtues um, that were then kind of became part of the catechism of the Catholic Church, as I mentioned. Um, but because they were so associated with religion, um, beginning with the emergence of, of modernity, there was a, philosophers sought a more scientific explanation for ethics, right? They didn't want to just have religious commandments to be, you know, just. They wanted to come up with, um, especially Immanuel Kant, who he developed a system that's known as deontological ethics, basically a moral duty ethics. He said that, that the reason to be good is because of the categorical imperative, right? That if we want a better world, if we want to live in a society where people are just, and that's the reason, it's the categorical, categorical imperative for us to be just ourselves, right? Which carried a lot of weight and was the, the dominant um, uh, philosophy of ethics for, for some decades. Then um, John Stuart Mill, likewise in the 19th century, sort of in, is, but still part of the Enlightenment, um, came up with utilitarian ethics, where at the, the duty was defined as the greatest good for the greatest number. Right, but both um, utilitarian ethics and Kantian deontological ethics were both based on moral duties. And as the philosophy continued to evolve in the 20th century, this idea of moral duty started to be questioned as just a metaphysical commandment. Right, it was ungrounded. So, beginning in the 1950s, the eminent philosopher um, uh, Elizabeth Anscombe wrote a very famous essay 
where she proposed that this idea of, of obligation was no longer legitimate within a philosophy of ethics. We had to jettison moral duty because it was not grounded in anything, and rather returned to an Aristotelian conception of virtue as not something you do for the sake of God or for the sake of your duty. You do it because you do it for your own self-interest. You do it because you want to be an excellent human, and you do it because it leads to what Aristotle called uh, eudaimonia, right? which is a kind of happiness, a fulfillment that goes beyond just hedonistic pleasure. It's the, it's the happiness that comes from, you know, having good character, right? For feeling fulfilled because you're being all you can be. Well, that's what I want. Yeah, right, right. So, okay, so Anscombe, but, you know, Aristotle in antiquity and Anscombe in modernity suggested that this, this, these virtues were, it was like, you know, eating a healthy diet or doing a good workout. You do it because it makes you feel good and because it's what you need to do to just be healthy and whole, right? But... This idea of self-interest um, at the same time in the 50s was being explored from another quarter, and that was by Abraham Maslow, right, who was unpacking the greater depths of, of human self-interest through his famous hierarchy of human needs, right? So first you're interested in, you know, basic survival, right, food, shelter. Then your interest shifts to, um, you know, belonging needs, social needs, and self-esteem needs, and eventually to self-actualization. Now, there's lots of valid critiques of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, you know, because they don't always go sequentially. Sometimes people who are still hungry want to self-actualize or give their gift to the world. So it's, you know, highly speculative, but nevertheless useful. And so the truth of it is sort of evident by the fact that it's still popular and, and helps people understand these sort of developing levels of human need. But as Maslow, as his theory was talked about, and, and he worked on it, more thoroughly, he began to realize like in the 70s, right before his death, that there was a level above self-actualization, which he called self-transcendence, right? And Viktor Frankl, another psychological theorist, really picked up on this, and he really emphasized self-transcendence too. He said, if you focus on self-actualization, you'll never get there, because in order to be self-actualized, you need to give to something that's greater than yourself, right? Self-actualization, by definition in some ways, really signifies that you serve something higher or, or created something bigger than your own needs or your own self-importance, right? But Maslow kind of just stacked it on top. It was just like, you know, another level in this hierarchy. But um, as I argue in depth in the book, which I, you know, is, is too extensive to get into here, but, but part of it is that, that self-interest or, or, or ultimate self-interest, which is, could be defined as self-actualization, and our greater than self-interest, which is, you know, self-transcendence or, or transcendence by itself, that these two motivating forces in our lives, they actually are an energetic polarity, right? That, that self-interest and greater than self-interest are, are a positive-positive, interdependent value polarity, wherein the, oh, the cool. value of one is tied to the value of the other, right? Thank you. So, so, yeah, so some philosophers have said that, look, you know, that your self-interest is amoral. It doesn't really count. What's really moral is when you're serving something that's transcendent, something that's bigger and more important than you. Well, I so get that. They've denigrated self-interest. Other philosophers like Nietzsche or Ayn Rand, you know, have talked about self-interest as being really what counts and that, you know, this idea of, of negating yourself or, or sacrificing yourself, that's pathological. Yeah. And in some ways, they're, they're right in the sense that self-interest by itself or this idea of greater than selfish by itself, if they're unconnected, they can become pathological. Yes. One becomes selfish. The other becomes codependent, right? You need to focus on yourself and so you can focus on others. And so they ideally they energize each other. And so I mentioned the um, learning and teaching and uh, devotion and service, the, the value circuits of practicing the beautiful, the true, and the good. Well, a similar thing's going on with this, with these inherent, this inherent energetic polarity of self-interest. How it's a kind of a the energetic properties are seen then that there's these two poles that are connected energetically, and one pole, the charge, the motivational force of one pole is dependent upon its existence of its connection to the other pole, right? So if it's if if, if you're only interested in yourself, that can't hold its motivating charge for long because it's right. just that's just all there is. And if you're if you're just interested in others and you are selfless, that can't hold its charge for long. It's got to be something in it for you. But when you understand that self-interest and greater than self-interest cohere and are interdependent, 
and ideally work together to reinforce each other, then you can begin to see how this relates to the practice of virtues, which we're talking about in which this, this exercise exemplifies. Right on. Yeah. Okay, so we have, we have this polarity of, of self-interest and greater than self-interest. And when we connect this polarity to the fundamental virtues or something very equivalent to them, we can begin to see the system, the systemicity, if you will, of, of how the virtues aren't just arbitrary and then aren't just sort of nice to have. So they're just a simple list. But there's actually um, that there's a physics of value energy, if you will, that helps explain why these virtues have been continuously returned to. I mean, it's important to say that not only were, uh, were virtues, you know, coming from the Greeks and the ancient Christians and, and being part of, of Western civilization, not only they were revived by um, academic moral philosophy, beginning with Anscombe, being followed by Alistair McIntyre and other important virtue ethicists, but they've also been validated from other quarters. So one of the more interesting ones is, is the validation of the seven fundamental virtues from positive psychology. Right, so one of the founders and, and luminaries within positive psychology is Martin Seligman, right, and he's he's at the University of Pennsylvania, a staunch secularist, right. So he he realized that character strengths were were a very they were a cornerstone of positive psychology. So Seligman's project was to say all of psychology is focused on pathologies, right. Since Freud, we're trying to help people's neuroses and their psychosis, et cetera, which is of course worthy. But he wanted to say, what, instead of focusing on what an unhealthy, uh, un, a psychologically unhealthy human looks like, let's also try to develop what a healthy psychological human looks like, and let's do it from a secular frame so that we're not bringing in traditional religious explanations of what being good is all about. Right, right so, on. Um, he and his colleague developed a book, which was published in 2004, called Character, Strengths, and Virtues, right, a categorization system. And they did all this social science research and discovered that there was a sort of a cross-cultural convergence around six broad areas of character strength. And these six broad areas turned out to be remarkably similar to the seven fundamental virtues you know, that, that are they're handed down from antiquity. The reason they came up with six and not seven is they lumped hope and faith together into a single area they called transcendence which is uh -huh. a fitting name, yep. but of course they, they were embarrassed by the seven. They were embarrassed by the religiosity of it, so they wanted to secularize it. And so, you know, making it into six and pretending that it was really just some, you know, validated by social science, I and mean, even there's some validation. I mean, the social science is... You talked about faith. It has its limits. Well, in other words, hope and faith, those yeah. are ways of connecting with the transcendent. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 So, yeah. so go ahead and show the next slide. Okay, here we are. The seven virtues organized around this um, seven-pointed polygon, or heptagon, it's called. And it shows with the gray lines in between how there, there's a unity of the virtues, how they're connected, right? How justice is connected to, to love and faith, et cetera. But then on the right, you can see that, that I've got what I'm, I'm underlying as obligations, which include transcendence and others and self. You know, even Aquinas, you know, wrote that the things we do, we either do for the sake of ourselves, for the sake of others, or for the sake of God. But we needn't believe in a, in a theistic God to recognize that there's a force, a pull, that, that influences almost every human, and this, this pull to serve something that's transcendent. And if you don't have a, a concept of transcendence that's spiritual, right, transcendence can be found in all kinds of other things, like the environment, like human needs, like art. Right or science or you know, national learning. Right, the, 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 even if you don't have a religious concept, there's the, the, your happiness itself depends on you recognizing and and connecting with something in your life that's more important than you. And so these dotted horizontal lines, you know, there's crossover. Right, love can be for others and it can be for the transcendent. Courage can be for other. You know. A, you know, your fear of others, can, your courage can protect you from that. But courage can also be focused on transcendence. So, but the point is that there's this polarity between transcendence, our, our greater than self-interest, and our self-interest, and that others are in the middle. In other words, you know, that as we, we, we connect with transcendence largely through our heroes, through our, the inspiration of others' creations, we serve the transcendent by serving others. So, so our self-interest goes through others and transcendence comes down through the others, which I'll show in another slide. 
But the, the point for, for this slide is just to show that there are, that, that what makes the seven virtues a system is not so much the, the concepts themselves as, as they're, the way they plug in to these sources of value energy, the sources that pull us from uh, our greater than self-interest and the sources that pull us from our self-interest. In other words, you know, self-interest is highly motivating, right? Yeah. But, but so is transcendent. I mean, it's not, the, the, it's not connected to our biological urges, so right. it's, it's not as strong, but it is connected to our happiness. It's connected to the cultural influence of our worldview, right? That which we consider to be sacred, however we define it even in a secular way. And so we can begin to see that there's this, these twin yeah. powers of value gravity or value magnetism. So go to the next slide. Yeah, there's a teaching in Buddhism about that there's two major desires that human beings have. Right. One is to be, yeah. and the other is to not be. <laughs> okay. So it's kind of like the same thing. Sure, yeah. Well, transcendence and self-transcendence, right, is a way of being and not being. But anyway, go to the next slide. Okay. So this is very similar to the previous slide, except there's a different list of seven virtues. And this, this is sort of key to understanding the exercise, right? There's a, the system is that there are virtues that connect with transcendence, that, that, that fulfill your obligations to what's greater than you. And there's virtues that fulfill your moral duty to yourself. Again, you have a moral duty to something serve something greater than yourself, both for your self-interest and for your greater self. You have a duty to a, a basic minimum altruistic duty to others. Again, this is in your own self-interest. And you have a moral duty to yourself. How do you fulfill those? There's different words we can apply, but what makes it a system is that these words are connecting to these um, sources of value energy. So these are, they're not just moral obligations. They're also uh, a motivational life-giving um, uh, you know, spiritual force. Yeah. So you get, you're plugging into an energy source. Right. Yeah. So, so the point is that because there are these ways to connect with what's greater than you and, and what's really, you know, who the best you can be, that the practice of virtues in a sense creates receptor sites, right? So that, that is practicing the virtue of courage creates a receptor site for that kind of, of the energy that goes with that, right? So, you know, Aristotle said, well, how do you practice courage, right? Well, you develop courage by being courageous, right? Even though you're, you know, scared out of your wits, right? If you know that, that you, you know, you expect yourself to be courageous and you're courageous despite the fact that you're afraid, that creates the habits. It creates the muscle memory in your consciousness. It creates, like I said, receptor sites, or, or channels for the flow of this upward current of the good, right? This, this opposite of entropy, right? Just like entropy is pulling everything down and disintegrating everything. The reason that Eros, the opposite of entropy, is not mysterious or it's not new age, it's, it's that all of life is responding to it, right? That is every, every life, every, every, form of, um, every form of life, from the most primitive cells all the way up through the higher mammals and, of course, with humanity, they are striving to survive and reproduce, right? Which is a primitive form of goodness, right? And, and you know, the good of the individual the animal and the good of their species, right? So in some ways, that's a little miniature exhibition of yeah. self-interest and greater self-interest. But when you get to the human level, it's, it, it, we can feel it. We can feel our self-interest. Again, it's rooted in our biology, but it goes beyond our biology. As we evolve our consciousness, our conception of our own self-interest grows, and, you know, even people at the lowest levels of development still have something that's more important to them, even if it's just their kids, right? Or, or you know, yeah. their tribe, right? So, so this, this eros is, is this, this value magnetism. It's a universal force because wherever we find life, we find purpose. And wherever we find purpose, we find value influencing it. Some kind of value is, is animating that purpose, attracting that purpose. And that's why it's not mysterious. It's an evident feature of the universe. But we're just beginning to understand it. I mean, like we didn't understand energy, it's physical energy until the 1850s, right? Until Maxwell and Sardi Cano and the other, you know, scientists of the, uh, you know, 19th century began to discover there was a physics to energy and that it was a real thing, right? Yeah. And so um, we're now, through this integral perspective, being able to, um, to recognize that there's, there's a, a, you know, this natural fact of ubiquitous physical energy is a, a symbol or a corollary, or, or it shows us a lot. It can reveal the, the properties and the behaviors of this 
eros or this value energy that animates all of life and which is um, a, a big way of, of making humanity better, of raising our consciousness, because you know, the pull is toward the transcendent itself. Right, the pull of this magnetic energy is toward a, a higher state of affairs, right, or, or an improved condition. And and the, the the more you grow your consciousness, the more you can feel that gravity. Yeah. The more you can feel the potential for a better yes. way, right? In other words, Whitehead himself defined evolution. Alfred North Whitehead, my favorite philosopher, he defined evolution as an increase in the capacity to experience what's intrinsically valuable. Wow! Say that again. It's it, the, the, the evolution can be understood as an increase in the capacity to experience what's intrinsically valuable. Wow. So, you know, as, as the tree of life grows, animal consciousness can appreciate greater and greater value. And then with the emergence of humanity, we get a whole new level of values that we can appreciate that wow. animals can. And as we evolve our worldviews, as the, the spiral is ascended, the scope of, of what we consider to be valuable grows. It widens. Why would it stop? Well, let's stop when uh, the time is completed and the finite is evolved to its full potential. But that's another discussion. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so, but just back to this idea of, of, of um, value magnetism. Um, what the what, what practicing the virtues d- does is that it it allows us to tune in to the various currents. You know, this polarity of, of greater than self interest and self interest. So a poetic way of thinking about it is like, just as like a plant develops leaves to collect energy, you know, and to grow and thrive, that these virtues are like the leaves of our soul, right? That help us, you know, receive the energy of value and, and be nourished by it. Oh, you know, how lovely. Grow our characters thereby, right? Yeah. So this, this practice is, is again, it's, it, it's a way of jumpstarting this this character development exercise and, and the portrait of the good that it creates is a way of thinking about what virtues really matter, especially in the context of what you consider to be transcendent, which you've listed, what you consider your ultimate life's goal, which you've listed, who your people are that you really care about. Yeah. And um, so if you'll go to the final slide or the penultimate slide, we can see this idea of, of um, this polarity and how it relates to this practice of goodness and how virtues um, are the techniques of this practice. So the gray is a polarity diagram, right? It shows uh, the polarity of the transcendent and the polarity of the self with the others, you know, in the middle, as I mentioned, you know, we, we receive the transcendent through the creations of others through, you know, that is our family's transcendent. We serve, we, we give to the world, we give our gift, specifically by being of service to others. You know, again, so the, the energy flow is is moving. This is sort of like, this polarity of interests, these motivational forces in human life are in some ways the engine room of the goodness practice, hmm. right? You can see, um, you know, this, if devotion and service is a way of channeling the energy of goodness, of practicing it, of, of learning it and teaching it, of appreciating it and creating it, then we can see how the motivational energy of the transcendent and our self-interest are there as the source of energy that powers or, or that, that, um, moves yeah. the energy through us and you know neutrifies our consciousness right on yeah um maybe you can show that final slide of, of the portrait just so we can see that one more time okay so you can begin to see how we you know transcendence isn't just isn't just the things that you love these are also forms of energy they motivate you right likewise especially with faith hope and love you know the more you develop your faith hope and love the more you can connect with the more you can receive the energy of that transcendence because faith for example faith is a technique of perception for that which is transcendent right this was this was elegantly expressed by the philosopher blaise pascal who wrote that um human things must be known to be loved but divine things must be loved to be known. And really, he really gets at the point that you know, that, that these, these virtues of faith, hope, and love, those are those open your heart to, to being devoted to, receiving the energy from, being motivated by the things which you recognize as transcendent. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, and just to use a couple examples that you have up here, uh, the transcendent being God's will. If you're my, my children. Right. To feel the transcendent of the transcendence of your children, you know, yeah, I mean, it, 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 most parents with would this lay lens, down their life for it's their fantastic. 
It, it transcends self-interest, right? Your children in some ways are more important than you practicing goodness. Yes. And humanity, <laughs> the environment, democracy, America. These are the, the, the list of the transcendent on this particular... Sort of traditional uh, ideals of transcendence, right? Yes. The other slides show more postmodern ideals of transcendent. Again, it doesn't have to be religious. It can be highly secular. But um, the point is, is that this practice can develop yourself. It's a personal spiritual practice. It can make you a better person. It's, it's, it's been worked out. This practice of virtues has been worked out within a living anthropological context for thousands of years. It's not just some you know, new age bromide. Right. It, it, it goes way back into history and people have, so there's a giant body of literature, yes. ancient and modern, analyzing why these are really what it means to live the good life. You know, being virtuous is a practice for being an excellent yes. person, being happy, having eudaimonia, right? But beyond um, you know, your self-interest, beyond, you know, the, the sort of the, the personal excellence and the happiness that goes with this practice of, of your personalized commitments to virtue, there's a larger political significance to a virtue's practice, right? Because as I explain in detail in developmental politics, values, even though we can talk about the beautiful, the true, and the good, and those are universal values, in politics, those values get translated into the specific worldviews, traditionalism, modernism, postmodernism that people who are familiar with this podcast and integral philosophy are aware of. And these worldviews, they, they take the beautiful, the true, and the good, and they concretize them into, you know, specific cultural goals, you know, like the environment or, you know, America or uh, freedom or liberty. You know, in other words, the different worldviews have different conceptions of what's beautiful, true, and good. Even though they may overlap, they also conflict and are dialectically in conflict, right? That's part of what's causing the culture war. But even though values may not be, especially the more specific you get, the less agreeable they become cross-culturally, virtues, especially when they're, you know, the seven chosen virtues that relate to greater than self-interest and, and uh, self-interest, these are universal. Every worldview can appreciate virtues. Like postmodernism originally rejected virtues in their effort to become uh, liberated, right? <clears throat> they didn't want you know, the sort of Christian ideas of temperance or prudence to be overlaid on their you know, liberation in the 60s and, and all the, the excess that went with that. But now I think there, there are, in postmodern circles, especially in academia, um, there are philosophers who are beginning to recognize that these aren't just, again, religious commandments. They're, um, they're, they're deeply connected to what it means to live a good life and, and be happy, right? So, so virtues are something that, that can be a, a basis of solidarity in our culture if we can develop a virtues culture. And we're not going to get everybody to care about virtues. But if we can develop a subculture in the same way that we've, over the past several decades, we've developed a natural foods culture. Right? Not everybody eats natural foods, but you know, thousands and thousands more people every day are turned on to the benefits of natural foods, how it makes their body healthier, how it makes them feel better, right? And so it's, it's trickled down through the society so that, it, that, I don't know, you could say that maybe not the center of gravity, but certainly a major part of American society is eating more healthy than they did 20 years ago. And that's an example of how a culture of, of physical health can uplift yeah. people. Culture. Right. So a virtues culture is similar. If we can develop a virtues culture and make people have, you know, just like you have an expectation if you're if you're postmodern that you're going to eat natural foods and you're going to live a healthy lifestyle, it's a cultural norm. If we can have a cultural norm that being virtuous, however you may define that, right? Again, there's not a set list of seven virtues, but there are virtues, and if you can commit to seven of them and practice them and compare and contrast with your friends and family who are also in a virtues practice, that yeah. begins to create a virtues culture, which can be a solidifying, a solidarity-building influence in an otherwise uh, hyper-polarized you know, society. And again, I, I go into how this virtue practice, because of its connection to self-interest, has all the elements necessary to help it become as popular as the practice of mindfulness. Right? Could, mindfulness is an ancient spiritual practice, but many people in the corporate world undertake it because it helps make them calm and more effective and, and less stressed out. They do it for personal reasons. Well, virtues similarly can be done for personal reasons like mindfulness. And, and some even suggest that the two practices can be combined, right? So being in the present moment with mindfulness and then either before or after checking in with the you know, seven virtues you choose to live yeah. by or your 10 virtues or whatever you know, virtue list you tend to want to commit to. 
Another way that the political implications of, of a building of virtues culture can make a difference is when we begin to understand the, the, the philosophy of virtues and, and what they mean, right? So, for example, Aristotelian understanding of virtue as a mean between extremes and, and um, how, how, you know, that, that all virtues are, in a sense, connected to each other. We can see how postmodernism, if it were to more adopt or, or popularize within its cultural discourse a, um, a, a, a culture of virtues, that it would make them more effective. So to be specific, right, a big focus of postmodern value concern is social justice and environmental justice. Justice, right, is, is one of the big things that postmodernists are striving for. But part of the reason that social justice and environmental justice aren't being as politically effective as they otherwise could be is because the postmodern concept of justice is not virtuous enough. In other words, the, the justice that they demand, is it's militant, it's angry. Right, and again, there's good reasons to be angry about the need for environmental justice and, and social justice. You want to have a certain amount of righteousness. That's a virtue in itself. But obviously, when you understand justice, the concept of justice, not just as a value, but as a virtue, you could begin to see how justice as a virtue is focused on redemption. It, 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 it's 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 informed by forgiveness and love. Right, that is justice in when it's held together with the other virtues becomes more virtuous by. Yeah by virtue of its connection and its influence by these others. And so if the postmodern concept of justice were to become more virtuous, it would become more attractive. And so the programs that postmodernists pursue for social justice and environmental justice would be more effective at persuading the rest of the society because their concept of justice would be more attractive, more spiritually fragrant, yeah. more charged with the value energy that it needs to persuade and succeed politically. Well, I... Appreciate how you have uh, laid out a polarity between gratitude and grievance, and that, uh, as you've told me a few, more than a few times, that the postmodernists are polarized on the grievance side. And one of the ways to make it more attractive is to bring on the gratitude. Well, the, again, the charge of the, the value creating capacity of a political grievance, right, or a protest that when you understand this technology of value energy and you, and you see that these polarities that, that, that any value, almost every value creating practice or concept or idea is connected to a, 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 another value creating concept or ideal that's in tension with it, that it's interdependent, that there's a relationship of challenge and support, right? So gratitude can support grievance, but it can also challenge grievance, right? So we're in this society where you know, if you, if you have a grievance in China, they put you in jail, right? If you have a grievance in the United States, you get on TV, right? So grievance <laughs> creates value only in the context of this larger free society and a, a degree of gratitude for those freedoms and, and you know, the, the sort of the, the context in which we can work to make the world a better place, that, that these things work together. You know, yeah. likewise, gratitude by itself can become pathological kind of yeah. jingoistic patriotism, right? We, yeah. just that. we don't want to accept things as they are. You know, I'm not arguing for the status quo, but an integral perspective makes us see that we can't just wipe away the status quo. We have to build on it, right? So we don't want to be satisfied with it, but we don't want to completely reject it. We want to do what evolution does, and that is transcend and include, transcend yeah. and include. Right, right. And that's what um, this philosophy this philosophy of virtues and this practice of virtues and this culture of virtues that we're trying to create as a new component of integral philosophy and the program of developmental politics um, that's how it can make a difference and, and relate to real, real world problems. Yeah. Well, right on, Steve. And uh, like I said, it has made a surprising impact on my life. And, you know, to ponder faith, love, justice, temperance, hope, courage, and prudence is uh you know it's just yeah i, I feel like i'm plugging i'm plugging into something right right you don't have to accept those you know somewhat stodgy terms prudence you know you i can, like it you i like self-mastery right i mean that's way more modern right or, or or you know practical wisdom again if you go each one of those seven fundamental right. virtues has seven other choices or six other choices that go with it and and but those those other choices are derived from that which you owe yourself 
that which yeah. you owe to others, that which you owe to what's greater than yourself. And so you can begin to see the system and appreciate it as a system and the philosophy, the philosophical explanation of how I kind of discovered this practice of virtues and this exercise to you know, kickstart people's virtue practice and get them to think about virtues, which is really the main part of the practice is just, you know, you, they're, again, like I said, they're, they're um, states of intention, habits of the heart, and, and those habits are formed by um, committing and recommitting and, and remembering and being tested, you know, being afraid and remembering that you've committed to the virtue of courage, right? Being, being you know, in doubt or having a nihilistic feeling and remembering that you've committed to the virtue of faith, yes. that you have faith, and that's a way of tapping into the, the value energy of the universe. Um, you know, there's a... Uh, yeah. There's really something to it. And that's why the exercise works. And so we've already had, uh, we just launched it a few days ago. We've had hundreds of people take it already. And um, that's and fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, so and, I, and, and people could find it at um, culturalevolution.org. Culturalevolution.org, the website of the Institute for Cultural Evolution. And you'll see it in the menu and you'll see it in the, the first uh, slider. So it's, you can't miss it if you just go to culturalevolution.org. It only takes between seven and 14 minutes. I mean, you can sit and contemplate and that's worthwhile. I mean, the longer you take, the more effective the exercise. But you can also do it quickly. It's 10 questions. It's not a giant commitment yeah. of time. Yeah. And you just play around with it. And you can do it multiple times. You get your chart exactly like you want it. And then put it on your refrigerator. You know, I, I mean, print it out. And, yeah. and, uh, I did. Yeah. And um, it, 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 having it in your personal space, you know, being, being mm -hmm. in, in mind, going through life with it, living with it. Um, this is a powerful spiritual practice, which uh, is, is newly emerging. And I think that the, the, the perspective of integral philosophy on this practice brings it alive at a new level. So I um, encourage people to check it out. Yeah. Well, I thank you very much, Steve McIntosh, for your work. And we're looking forward to the book, Developmental yeah, Politics. We'll be discussing lots more about these other uh, uh, technologies of value energy, these other methods for tapping into the upward current of the good and the philosophy behind that. Um, you know, I kind of try to land as much as I could in this talk, but there's much more to unpack and a lot of interesting things. Yeah, that's good stuff. All right. Yeah. Thank you, Steve McIntosh. Thank you, everybody, for listening to The Daily Evolver. See you next time.